0: I want to welcome those of you that are over in the the venue, and I'm grateful for the team that leads worship over there. And if you're listening online, welcome. If you're watching online, welcome. We have lots of people that, uh, in this modern technology that uh, just hear God's Word um, in lots of different formats. If you have a Bible, you can turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. And we have worshiped the the Lord today uh, by singing songs to Him. We have worshiped the Lord today by um, giving our gifts to Him, our first fruits to Him. We have worshiped the Lord, at least over here, through baptism and watching people be obedient to the Word of God. We have worshiped the Lord through a time of prayer. And now we're just going to continue to worship the Lord through the proclamation of his, of his word. There's lots of ways that we honor the Lord and worship the Lord. And this is one of them. If you don't have a Bible, um, all the verses or most of them will be inside your program so you can see the word of God for yourself or they'll come up on the jumbotrons so that you can see the word. It's the word that is important. Whether it whether I actually have you turn or whether you look at it in a piece of paper up on those jumbotrons, it's the word that's powerful. doesn't matter the context of it. It's the word that's powerful, and we want you to see that for your, yourself. Uh, we're in a series here on, on leadership, and we're looking at the life of Nehemiah as our example. Um, he was a, he was a, a great leader. And yes, the the book of Nehemiah is a historical book. It's historically accurate. It gives us a a piece of history of the Jewish people and how God was interfacing with them. But it's much more than that. There are some great principles that we can dig from the book of Nehemiah, that we can mine from the book of Nehemiah that can help us today as it relates to, to, to leadership. Proverbs chapter 28 says this when there is moral rot within a nation, its government topples easily, but wise and knowledgeable leaders bring stability. One version says, but a nation will be strong and endure when it has intelligent, sensible leaders. Beloved, when when you have good, intelligent, wise leadership, it it makes a nation strong. It brings stability to it, But, but I think you could also apply this to other areas, and I talked about this a few weeks ago. I think you could say a family will be strong and endure and have stability when there's good, intelligent, wise leadership within that family. I think you could say a business will be strong and endure and have stability when there's good wise, intelligent leadership within that business. I think you could say your own personal life will be strong and endure and have stability when you lead your own life in a God-honoring way, in a wise way, in an intelligent way, a sensible uh, way. So far, we've looked at two major characteristics of a good leader. Number one, a good leader understands the importance of prayer. And we obviously saw that in the life of Nehemiah. Good uh, leadership always begins with prayer. Our brother James said this in James chapter 5. He says, when a believing person prays, great things happen. When a believing person prays. And that doesn't mean a believer. There are lots of believers who just don't believe. They just don't really believe that God can do what he says he can do. But when you're a follower of Christ and you really believe, you really believe, and you pray, wow, amazing things happen, amazing things happen. And number two, a good leader understands the importance of planning, and we certainly saw that in the life of Nehemiah. Uh, Proverbs chapter 4 says Plan carefully what you do And whatever you do will turn out right And the Proverbs are just that They're Proverbs They're not promises necessarily Sometimes you can plan and plan and plan And things can go haywire But usually When you sit down and you plan And you think some things through And you really kind of thought it all out And then you unpack the plan It usually goes okay Usually it goes pretty, pretty well well, today we're going to look at a third major uh, characteristic of a of a good leader, and that's the importance of motivation. Good leaders know how to motivate people to action. You see, it's one thing to pray; it's a, it's, a, it's another thing to plan. <laughs> it's a whole other thing to then gather the troops to actually move and take action on on the plan. And in our text today, we're going to clear example of how to go about motivating people to accomplish a goal. We're, we're, we're going to see that in the life of, of Nehemiah. Now, let me uh, give us just a, a, a quick um, set let, let me tell you a little bit about the book of, of, of Nehemiah. Some of you, most of you know it probably pretty well. But there are some of you that are visiting today, and, or maybe you're new in the faith. So I want to make sure you understand what the book of Nehemiah is about and, and, and all of that. God had come to the Jewish people and gave uh, them some decrees, some uh, commands. Uh, God said, hey, I want you to do this, and I, I don't want you to do that. I want you to, 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 to do these things with your life. I don't want you to do these things. And he made it very clear to the, the, the nation of Israel what, what God wanted through these commands and decrees. But the uh, Jewish people said, no thanks. They didn't want to follow God's commands. They didn't want to follow the the decrees of God. And whenever you do that, it always comes with, with a consequence. Even today, God has left us some commands, some decrees. He says, here are the things I want you to do with your life. Here are some things that I want you to stay away from. Here, here, here are some things that, that, that I want you to use your one life for. Get involved in these things. These things over here I want you to stay away from. Don't, don't, don't do these kinds of things. And if you decide to blow God off and say, you know what, God, I, I don't really want to uh, do what you say, or I only want to do these three things, I really like these three things, but these over here, I'm going to keep doing these things. It comes with a consequence. The Bible teaches very clearly that when you blow God off, when you sin, when you rebel against God and His Word, it comes with a consequence. Well, when the Jewish people in Nehemiah's day uh, uh, disobeyed God, it came with a consequence. The people were living in a city called Jerusalem, and God allowed an invading army, the Persian army, to come, and they broke down the walls around Jerusalem, and then they... They they came into the the town like locusts and, knocked over all the buildings, and man, it was a a mess, and they they captured all of the people, and they deported them to a a place called Babylon. Today, Babylon is where Iraq is, so if you're reading your Bible, and whenever you read the word Babylon, just think of where Iraq is today, and that's where Babylon was. So God allowed the city to, to just be in a ruins. The, the temple where the Jewish people worshipped God was destroyed. And then they were deported. They were taken into captivity and taken from Jerusalem, about 800 to 1,000 miles, to, uh, to, to Babylon. It was, uh, the consequence was, was pretty, pretty severe uh, for disobeying the, the Lord. Well, um, There came a moment when God began to extend His grace to the the Jewish people. He began to extend His mercy to them, and He allowed a a first wave of Jewish people to go back the 800 to 1,000 miles to Jerusalem. And this first group, obviously, when they arrived, man, they, they just... It was just a a bloody mess. Uh, I've I've told you. Imagine those pictures that we saw when Hurricane Katrina went through and and, and ravished, you know, uh, New Orleans and all of that, or or uh, Sandy recently, and you saw the pictures of all those homes and businesses and the mess that Sandy did. Well, that's what Jerusalem looked like. It was a mess. The walls were tore down, all the houses were tore down, the businesses were tore down, the the temple was tore down, and so that's what greeted this first group of Jews that got to come back. So you can imagine they were super bummed out and depressed and the morale was down. I mean their their city was just was devastated. Well, it wasn't long after that, about 20 years after that, a guy by the name of Zerubbabel actually rebuilds the temple. The walls were still a mess and the city was a mess, but at least they rebuilt this this temple. They got it rebuilt so they could worship the Lord. Well, then there came a moment when a second group of uh, Jews got to come back to the city of, of Jerusalem, and it was still a mess and morale was low. And by this time, there was a guy named Nehemiah who had been born in Babylon. He had never been to Jerusalem. His mommy and daddy were probably uh, the ones taken off in captivity. He's born in Jerusalem. He's never been there. And there comes a moment when his brother comes back home. His brother went to Jerusalem, saw the mess. He comes home and he tells his, his brother, Nehemiah, hey, Jerusalem's a mess. The walls are all down, the city's in ruins, man, everybody's depressed, you know, it's just doom and gloom. Who wants to walk around the city? There's nothing to do, it's just a mess, and there's just wailing and crying and, and, you know, all kinds of stuff, you know, going on. It wasn't, it wasn't good. It just so happens that Nehemiah was kind of high up in the Persian government, he was a cupbearer to the king. And a cupbearer was kind of like a, being a prime minister. He was kind of like the secret service agent. He kind of protected the, 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 the king. So he had access to the king. Well, when Nehemiah hears how, you know, you know, how goofed up Jerusalem was, it really broke his heart. And he began to pray. The Bible says he prayed for days and days and days. And in Hebrew, it has kind of this sense that it, it was really months he begins to just cry out to God and fast and he begins to plan and he begins to dream and God begins to give him a vision for maybe going back to Jerusalem and somehow being a part of, of a team that would rebuild this city and rebuild the walls and, you know, in the disgrace that was happening in, in, in Jerusalem. And so after about four months or so, um, he gets a chance to talk with the king. God opens a door, and the king says, Hey, Nehemiah, you know, you look sad. What's going on in your life? What's happening? And this was the moment. God had opened the door after months of praying, months of planning, months of dreaming, and Nehemiah says, King, here's the deal Jerusalem's a mess. Where my forefathers were, were you know, born and buried is in ruins the walls are messed up my people are you know depressed or the morale is low king i want to go back and rebuild the city now that was a little bit dicey because basically nehemiah was saying to the king king i need a few years off can i get a leave of absence for a few years and he was high up in the government. He was a well-trusted man. And, and so the, the chances that the king was going to let him go were slim. Imagine if you own a business. Imagine your, your best manager, your best right-hand man comes to you and says, hey, listen, I need about three years off. Mm. You hate to lose your best man, don't you? That's an important guy or important gal. And that's what Nehemiah is saying. He's saying, king, I, I need to leave. I know I'm the cupbearer. I I know I'm your you know your secret service agent and all of that. But I gotta go. And on top of that, the king had already said, who was Artaxerxes, those walls are not to be rebuilt. The king had already weighed in on it. He had already told everybody, I don't want those walls rebuilt. And so Nehemiah is going to ask for about two three years off, and then he's going to ask to do something. The king's already said, I don't want it done. But because he had prayed. He had planned and dreamed and thought things through. God opened the door, and Nehemiah presents the plan to the king. And lo and behold, the king says, Nehemiah, I'll let you go. So Nehemiah was going to be a a third group of Jews that were going to go back to the city. Remember, there's already been two waves of Jewish people that have gone back to Jerusalem. Nehemiah was now going to be the third. But God does something interesting. Not only does he tell Nehemiah, go ahead, go back, I'll give you the time off. Go ahead and and, and go back and rebuild the the city, the walls. But God also then says, hey, Nehemiah, here's the deal, I'll pay for the whole thing. And and so Nehemiah, you know, uh, uh, is able to go to the you know, the, the lumber yard and get all the lumber and all the stuff he's gonna need, all the hammers and nails and trowels and cement, whatever it was gonna take to rebuild this place, the king's gonna pay for it all. And the king says, Listen, you're gonna travel 800 miles from Babylon all the way to Jerusalem. You're gonna have to go through some hostile countries, uh, some regions that, and, 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 and towns and all of that. And so I'm gonna give you a letter from me that says, Hey, You get free passage. No one's to mess with you. As you go from town to town, region to region, province to province, I got you covered. So as Nehemiah made that four-month journey, it was probably about four months, every time a a governor or, or somebody who was a high official in one of the provinces or towns said, hey, what are you guys doing? He could whip out his letter from Artaxerxes. The king says, we can have passage. Oh, and so Nehemiah was able to make his, his way to, to, uh, to, to Jerusalem. Well, when he finally gets there, the people are totally bummed out. As I've said, they've been living amongst the ruins for a long time. Twice before in the last 90 years, people have tried to rebuild the walls, but it you know, just failed miserably. And so the, the people had very little confidence that the walls would ever be rebuilt again. So Nehemiah has to somehow rally the troops. He's got to somehow gather this group of people and get them excited about, you know, rebuilding the town. Take action. And we know he did because in verse 18 of our text it says, they replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the walls. And so they began the, the good work. The question I want to deal with today is how did he pull it off? How did Nehemiah do this? What, what is it in this text that we can mine and see how he got people to go along with, with the plan? You see, he used to just be a servant under the king. Now he's been promoted to manager. He's now been promoted to supervisor. He's now gonna show up in this city no longer just a servant of the king, but he's now the manager. He's now the supervisor. And he's got a plan. He's got to institute. He's got to rally the troops. And I do think that there are some nuggets in here, whether you're trying to rally your family, you're the leaders of your family. Some of you are the, the leaders of your business. You own the business, and maybe there's a new plan that God has laid on your heart, and you've got to rally your, your employees. How do you do that? Maybe, maybe you know, you, you started off as just an employee somewhere, and, and now you're the manager. And you've got a thought. You're the supervisor, and you've got a thought on how to take the, your department to a new level. How do you rally the people around you? You see, there's all kinds of real practical things in this story. And so let's, let's just read our, our text together. Nehemiah chapter 2, look at verse 9. It says, when I came to the governors of the province west of the Euphrates River, I delivered the king's letters to them. The king, I should add, had sent along an army officer, army officers and horsemen to protect me. But when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard of my arrival, they were very displeased that someone had come to help the people of Jerusalem. This is a great story. So, I finally arrived in Jerusalem. Three days later, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few others with me. I had not told anybody about the plans that God had put on my heart for Jerusalem. We took no pack animals with us except the donkey that I was riding. After dark, I went through the valley gate, past the jackal's well, over to the dung gate to inspect the broken walls and the burned gates. Then I went to the fountain gate into the king's pool, but my donkey couldn't get through the rubble. This city's a mess, right? So though it was still dark, I went up to the Kidron Valley instead, inspecting the wall before I turned back and entered again at the valley gate. The city officials did not know that I had been out there or what I was doing, for I had not yet said anything to anybody about my plans. I had not yet spoken to the Jewish leaders, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or anyone else in the administration. But now I said to them, you know very well what trouble we are in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. Let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and end this disgrace. Then I told them about how the gracious hand of God had been on me and about my conversation with the king, King Artaxerxes. They replied at once, yes, let's rebuild the wall. So they began the good work. But when Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, there's another guy, they heard about our plans. They scoffed. They mocked us. What are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king, they asked. And I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We, his servants, will start rebuilding this wall. But you have no share, you have no legal right, and you have no historic claim in Jerusalem. Now, that's historical fact. You just read some some Jewish history. And on some plane, just learning Jewish history is a good thing. But because I, I, I want to make it practical, I, I, I want to find some things that can help all of us in our leadership skills. We've talked a lot about praying. We've talked a lot about planning. And now we need to talk a little bit about how to, how to, how to, how to motivate people. Okay? Okay. Um, So so number one, and I'm only going to really hammer the the first three or four, and then the last three, I'm just going to give you the the fill in the blank so you don't panic, and uh, you can go home in peace. Okay, I'm not even going to talk about the the last three, Uh, all right? Uh, Number one, a a good leader, a good motivator, they just expect opposition. you got to expect it just have to expect it. Verse nine, when I came to the governors of the provinces west of the Euphrates rivers, I delivered the king's letters to them. You see, Nehemiah knew he was going to have trouble. And so we saw last week where what did he do? He asked the king, king, I'm going to need some letters. I'm going to need a letter that as I go through these different provinces, I can just hold them and go, look, Artaxerxes says I can go. He knew that there would be people who wouldn't like the plan. He knew that there would be opposition to what he was gonna do. Now, up to this point, he doesn't know about Sanballat. He doesn't know about Tobiah. And he doesn't know about Geshem. But, but they're coming, right? Nehemiah hasn't even arrived in Jerusalem. And there's already opposition to his plan. And by the way, you find these two guys throughout the book of Nehemiah. They're like a bad penny. They just never go away. <laughs> Beloved, when God puts something in your heart and you begin to pray about it and you begin to think about it and you begin to make plans uh, uh, around it, the moment you say, let's go, let's get it, you know, let, let's do it, let, let, let's get her done, I guarantee you that someone's gonna jump up and say, let's not. That's stupid. That's stupid. That's not the way we've done it around this place. That's not the way it happens here. We've always done it this way. What are you doing? There's always gonna be those people. It'll happen in your business, when you try to make a plan, when you try to change something. It'll happen as you manage people. It can happen in your home. God lays something on your heart and you as a parent begin to make a shift, begin to make a change and you say, hey, listen, I really believe that we need to start having family devotions. I got the feeling that your children may not like that. Maybe one of your children, maybe both, maybe your spouse won't like that. There's going to be opposition to what God may lay on your heart. Whenever God's people rise up and say, let's accomplish this, or let's accomplish that, let's rebuild the wall, Satan and his people rise up. They try to oppose it. And let me tell you why. Let me tell you why there will always be opposition to what God wants to accomplish. Our brother Paul said this in Romans chapter eight, he said, for the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It is always hostile to God. It is always hostile to God. A sinful nature doesn't want to obey God's laws. never has and it never will. Beloved, the Bible teaches that every one of us has a sinful nature. Every one of us. Everybody in this room, everybody over in the venue, if you're watching on the internet, you're listening on your radio in your car, every single person has a sinful nature. An Adamic nature. And that sinful nature, that Adamic nature is hostile towards the things of God. Your your sinful nature doesn't want to obey God, doesn't want to follow God, doesn't want anything to do with godliness, holiness, nothing. For those of you that are or Christians, I want you to think back to the days before you gave your life life to Christ. You didn't care about God's word. You didn't care about what God said. Sunday mornings, you'd drive right by churches on your way to the grocery store or on your way wherever it is you were going, doing whatever, you didn't care what was happening here. In fact, for most of us, you mocked what was happening in here. Man, Christians were just a bunch of losers that got together and read an, an ancient book. talked about all these commands that God had for for them. You didn't care about any of that. I didn't care about any of that. You didn't care about pleasing God. You didn't care about honoring God. You lived however you wanted to live, right? You made your own rules. Man, before I gave my life to Christ, I, I just did whatever made me feel good. That's all that mattered to me. In fact, When you boil it down, all it really means is that you just wanted to be your own God. You certainly didn't want somebody else telling you what to do. Some of you are here, and and I'm glad you're here. Maybe you're over in the venue. I don't know. Maybe you're listening to this. And right now, you know what? (laughs) You really don't care about what God's word has to say. You're here, and you're being kind. You know, somebody brought you here, and, you know, you're being courteous, and I appreciate that. But you just want this to end. Because you really don't care about God. You don't want anybody telling you how to live. You just want to do whatever you want to do. But there came a moment when those of us that name the name of Christ, we asked God to come into our life we asked Jesus to come into our life and he did exactly what we asked him to do. He came into our life through the power of the Holy Spirit. And now we have what is called a Christ-filled nature. Now we still got the old nature. We still got the sinful nature. We still got the Adamic nature. But now, those of us that know Jesus, we have a Christ-filled nature. And obviously there are Christ-filled nature. It loves God's word. It wants to follow God. It wants to please God. It wants to, to uh, uh, have us live a God-honoring life, a God-pleasing life, right? So our Christ-filled nature and our sinful nature, wow, sometimes we have this civil war going in our, uh, on in our lives, don't we, Christian? Man, we love God's word and we want to follow God's word, but man, sometimes our sinful nature just gets in the way, right? Man, I remember before I gave my life to Jesus, I just did whatever I wanted to do. I didn't care if it hurt people, I didn't care. Then all of a sudden, I gave my life to the Lord. Now all of a sudden, I got the Christ filled nature. And now, you know, I'd go and do something that was sinful, something that just was about fulfilling my own desires, and it was like, oh, man. I felt horrible. Man, It was a, it was a miserable time of my life. My flesh loved being in control. But now I had this Christ-filled nature. Now there was this war going on, you see. The more I studied the Word of God and the more I memorized the Word of God and the more I got involved in Christian things, my roots grew deeper and my life began to change and all of a sudden my Christ-filled nature, you see, could, could, could win out, could win the Civil War, if, if you will. Now, are there times when we as Christians blow it? Absolutely. Are there times when we as Christians get off track? Yes. Are there times when the, our flesh gets the better of us? Absolutely. But because of our relationship with Jesus, because we have the Christ-filled nature in us, wow, we still long to to live a a God-honoring life. All this to say, listen, anytime you make the decision to follow the Lord, follow his plan, there's going to be opposition to it. There's no doubt that God wants you to motivate your family to holiness and godliness for his glory, right? There's no doubt about that. But you just need to remember, there are going to be forces at work that don't want that to happen. And those forces could be internal, your own flesh. They can be external. Maybe you got a spouse that just doesn't want anything to do with God. Maybe you've come to faith in Christ over the last year and your children are a little bit older and, you know, they're not where you're at in terms of your walk with the Lord and they may not want it either. You want to bring them to church and expose them to the things of God and they're going, no, 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 I don't want any of that, man. That's good for you, Mom. That's okay for you, Dad, but don't, don't drag me into your little Christian world. You see, because they have the sinful nature and it opposes biblical things. They don't want any part of of, of biblical things. There's no doubt that God wants you to build your business on biblical principles for his glory. But I guarantee you there are going to be forces at, at, at work. Satan's going to do all that he can to, to oppose it. You're going to be sitting in there doing your taxes or whatever, and you're going to look around and go, man, I could really say some dough right here if I just say this. No one will really know So internally, your, your flesh is saying, I just cheat here. Hey, just, just do something here. No big deal. It ain't, ain't, ain't going to matter. And the spirit of Christ in you is going to say, no, no, no. That, that, that is not how you run a Christian business. There's no doubt that God wants you to be a, a, an influence on your campus. Some of you are teachers. We have lots of great teachers here in the, who teach in private schools and public schools. And God wants you to be a great leader, a great influencer on your campus. Some of you are students, so maybe on a college campus, a high school campus, a, a junior high campus, or, or whatever. And God wants you to be a leader there. God wants you to be an influencer there. <laughs> just, just buckle your seatbelt. There are forces at work that don't want you to, to, to somehow, you know, honor God with, with your life there. And in some cases, it can be the federal government steps up and says, not here! Obviously, this country was founded on biblical principles. This country, the, the textbooks in our public schools were all the Bible. Just got to go back in history and look today. <laughs> if you're a teacher, man, and you got to be careful, don't you? You just can't have your Bible out. You just can't be reading your Bible at your desk. Man, you, you, can, you can get in some trouble. There's going to be opposition, but, but take heart, Christians. Whether whether you're a, a, a manager in a place and you want to you know, manage your department in a God-honoring way for God's glory, maybe your supervisor above you is going to ask you to... to 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 compromise what you believe in. Maybe you're on a school campus and and look, you take courage. Thank the Lord that you're where you're at. And you just be salt and light there where you're at. Anyway, look. uh, God put something on on Nehemiah's heart. Go to Jerusalem and rebuild the city. Rebuild the, the walls. And before he, you know, did anything, he prayed and thought about it and he planned and, Man, he hasn't even got to Jerusalem yet. And there's opposition. And you just need to understand, Christian, the reason why we face the opposition we face. And whenever you stand up for biblical truth, whether it be the, 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 what the definition of a, a marriage is or abortion or whatever, boom! You will have Opposition. And it may come in the form of the most powerful man on the planet, the President of the United States. There's opposition. But God's bigger than all of that. God's bigger than any man, any woman. But just just recognize that there's opposition out there who doesn't like what this book teaches and is going to do everything it can to make sure We as believers are marginalized. We're mocked, just like what happens to Nehemiah. Thousands of years have gone by. They were mocking Nehemiah for following God. And guess what? We're still being mocked. Nothing's changed. Nothing's changed. Now, I want to jump ahead... um, In in the story, I want everyone to go to look at verse 19, okay? Because a good leader motivator has to confront the opposition (laughs) quickly and confidently before starting the plan. It says in verse 19, but when uh, Sanballat, Tobiah, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of our plan, they scoffed, made fun of us, they ridiculed us. You know, what are you doing? Are you rebelling against the king or whatever? I replied, the God of heaven will help us succeed. We as servants will start rebuilding this wall, but you have no share, no legal right, or historic claim in Jerusalem. So as I said, we've jumped ahead in the story a little bit. Okay, Nehemiah has now told everybody what what the plan is, and and that was to rebuild the city. And these two guys um, are working really hard to rally the people against him. And now there's this guy named Gisham, which is typical. Opposition tends to, tends to grow, okay? And let me tell you why. The opposition tends to be more vocal. They'll speak up. And they'll, just, they'll say all kinds of stuff. And they'll rally the sinful nature within people that is in opposition to God, Okay? But Nehemiah immediately responds to these you know, three, three losers. He says, hey, hey, hold on, hold on. The God of heaven is going to give us success. The God of heaven is going to give us success. And by the way, you don't have any part in this. It's kind of like the, the Jedi mind trick. You know. You'll have no part in this. <laughs> you know, unbelievable. Now I want you to notice that Nehemiah doesn't argue with these three guys. Listen to me. You, you never want to argue with your opposition because, because it never works. It never works. Someone said, you know, when you wrestle with a pig, the pig likes it, and all you do is get dirty. <laughs> and, and, and that's the way it kind of goes, isn't it? One of the things I hate are all the yelling and screaming you see on TV, you know, and two people that are in opposite corners of stuff, they just yell and scream, and it's just ugly. I expect pagans to, 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 to act like that not those that follow the Lord. There's no reason to argue. Proverbs chapter 17 says, starting a quarrel is like opening a floodgate, so stop before a dispute breaks out, just stop it. Proverbs 20 says, it's to a man's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. You see a lot of fools on TV, a lot of fools. And some of them claim to know Jesus. Psalms 19 says, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Here's my point. Nehemiah doesn't argue. Instead, he simply confronts them quickly and confidently. He simply says, hey, here's the deal. God's with us. We're going to do this because God said we're going to do it, and you have no say in it. That was it. You don't see him yelling and screaming across, you know, a room or anything like that. And because he doesn't argue about it, because he just quietly, quickly, confidently, you know, responds, I think the Jewish people that were standing around, that had lived in such despair for decades, I mean. Over the last, whatever it was, 90 years, you know, they've tried to rebuild the city twice, and the walls twice, and it always failed. And here comes Nehemiah, and he's, a, he's told the plan to everybody. And I'm sure they were just kind of going like, yeah, whatever. You're just the next guy who's going to try this, and it's going to fail. And all of a sudden, these important guys, Sanballat and Tobiah, you know, they're, they're, they're stepping up. And I'm sure they were going, oh, no, you know, we're, we're toast." Nehemiah says, oh no, God's gonna do this and you don't have a part in it. I got the feeling that all the Jews that were standing around were going, whoa, 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 this guy's different. He he just invoked the name of the Lord. Whoa, hey, maybe Nehemiah's a little bit different than these other guys that have come and tried to fix the city. This guy speaks like like nobody else has has spoken. So you always have to expect opposition, and then when it comes, you've got to confront it. Maybe maybe you're the manager of a a place, and and the owner or whatever, or your supervisor tells you, hey, listen, here's the new plan, here's the new strategy, here's what we're going to do, here's the new line we're going to launch or whatever, and you gather whoever it is that's under you, and you begin to share the plan, and one of them goes, ah, I don't want to do that. Oh, no, no, no. I got it from up top. This is what we're gonna do, and this is how we're gonna do it, okay? When you're when you as a family, your your children may not like something. I don't want to go to, you know, I don't want to go to church today. That happens in my family. My, my kids do that. I don't want to go to church today. You know, they got the sinful nature too. I don't want to go to church today. No, no, here's a here's a, in our family what we do is we get up and get ready and we go to church. Uh Okay. I don't argue with them. I don't get in a fight with them. I appreciate that. Sometimes I don't feel like going either. <laughs> Everybody's waiting for me. I got, I got, I got, I got to get there, okay? <laughs> There's no reason to argue about stuff. There just isn't. You just share, hey, in our family, we get up and we go honor the Lord and we worship the Lord. And so, so just put your clothes on. You walk away. Number three. Oh, man. And and this one's critical. A a good leader, motivator, has good timing. Has good timing. Here's what happens. He finally gets to Jerusalem. And all the people know he's coming. I mean, they they can see the cloud of dust and... You know, all the camels that are coming. They, they can see the um, army brigade that's following him. Uh, they, they can see all the, the lumber, you know, that are on the back of all these camels making their way. And they, they, they get to Jerusalem, and I don't know, he checks into the Motel 6 or whatever it was. And, you know, all the camels are there. they got to get food for the camels and water for the camels, and all the people are there. But he doesn't do anything for three days. It says, so I arrived in Jerusalem. Three days later, I slipped out during the night, taking only a few men with me. I had not told anybody about the plans that God had put on my heart. So for three days, he's sitting in the Motel 6 with his whole entourage. Why? Why did he wait three days? I don't know. And it was bugging me. So let me give you a few thoughts, okay? I don't know whether this is why or not, but I'm going to give you a few thoughts because I just couldn't... Get my mind off of that thing. The guy has been praying and planning and praying and planning. He goes to the king, and the king finally says, go, and gives him a blank check. And he finally, you know, gets there. You think, you know, he'd jump off his camel and, you know, go to work. But he doesn't. For three days, he didn't say a thing. Let me, let me give you a couple thoughts. I think, number one, he was resting. He traveled a long way, and he knew, um, he knew he had a big job ahead of him. And before he pulled the trigger on this thing, I, I think he just needed to get some rest. Imagine, I rode on a camel for, you know, 10 minutes, and my, to this day, my back still hurts. <laughs> I, I'm still <laughs> thinking, you know, ibuprofen for that moment. Imagine months of riding on a camel. I think he was tired. N- number two, I think he was praying. He was a man of prayer. We, we, we know that. He knows he's got this big job ahead of him. He knows there are people out there that are going to oppose what, he, what, he, what he's going to do. And so he just hold up resting and praying. He didn't want to take a move. He didn't want to do anything until he prays. Number three, I think he was still planning. I think he, you know, got a table out and, you know, put all of his architectural plans out on the table and. You know, had his guys in there going, okay, what about this? Okay, what about that? Hey, do, and, and, and he's reviewing the plan. And I think number four, and I think this is the big one, I think. I think he was building curiosity. I think everybody was going, dude, what's that guy doing here? I mean, he came all the way from Babylon. Artaxerxes sent him here. I hear he was like high up in the Persian government. And did you see all that Lumber. What's going on? I don't know. I'm waiting for a press conference. And so so every day, you know, the people are out there, hey, nothing, hey, nothing. And then all of a sudden, you know, there comes this moment when there's the podium. And now Nehemiah is going to walk to the podium. He's going to tell people the plan, what the goal is. And I think at that moment, Because he's well rested. I think because he had prayed, he had still done some planning, he had built curiosity. When he walked up to the podium, man, it was like E.F. Hutton. Everyone was just, what's what's that guy gonna say? What's this about? Beloved, all this to say that timing is really everything. Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, there's a time for everything, a season for every activity under the sun. There's a time to be born, a time to die, a time to plant, a time to uproot. There's a time to kill, a time to heal, a time to tear down. And there is a time to build up. Time to weep, time to laugh, time to mourn, time to dance, time to scatter stones. Time to gather them up, time to embrace, a time to reframe, a time to search, a time to give up, a time to keep, a time to throw away, time to tear down, time to mend, time to be silent. There's a time to speak, time to love and a time to hate, a time for war and a time for peace. Beloved, the Bible clearly teaches that there is a proper time and place and procedure for every matter under the sun. And a good motivator, a good leader knows when the timing's right. Um, When I come home from work and I got my briefcase, you know, on my shoulder and my clothes, you know, and I come in and I'm sure that there are things that have happened in the house that day that I need to know about. My wife is smart enough and wise enough to know that as soon as I open the door, that ain't the time to rush me. And lay on me all the stuff that's happened during the day. Because I'll go get in my car and head back to my office. <laughs> I, I, I'd rather be there. i got a couch in there. I'll, I'll sleep there. I, you know, can you give me a second to put down my briefcase, take off my coat. My dogs love me. They don't care. They've got nothing to say. But <laughs> let me just wrestle around with them for a few minutes. Can I do that? How about I get a little food in my stomach? It's been a long time since lunch. You see, a lot of times God gives us something to say to somebody. It could be our spouse. It could be our children. It could be our parents. It could be our employees. It could be, you know, those that are under us. It could be the people in your classroom. It doesn't matter when it is, you know, who it is. There's a proper moment for everything. And sometimes if you don't have good timing, A good, you know, thought—a godly thought—goes right out the window, doesn't it? And now all of a sudden, you've created a whole other set of problems. And I know, probably like Nehemiah, you want to get to something. Man, I want to get to—I got to get to those walls, man. This is it. I'm. Day one. This ain't this ain't the right moment. Day two. I'm sure he had some of his buddies saying, you know, hey, listen, the people are all gathered around. Uh-uh. That's ain't it. Day three. This is it? This is it? All right. And now he's going to unload the plan. Good leaders, good motivators always have good timing. By the way, you see that in the life of Jesus. Timing was important to him. Often throughout the New Testament, you read this phrase, my time had not yet come. My time had not yet come. My time had not yet come. And then you get to the very last week of his life, leading up to the crucifixion. He changes it and he says, okay, my time has now come. It's timing. All Timing, and you ought to think about timing in your family as you lead your family. Timing in your business as you lead employees. Timing in all of those areas that you have leadership. And and, and number four, uh, just write these down, okay? A leader, a motivator gathers facts. One of the things you see is that Nehemiah is still gathering facts. Yes, he's heard from his brother. Yes, he's heard from a lot of people that the town's a mess, but he still gets there and he's now going to check things out for himself. The Bible says in Proverbs 14, only simpletons believe everything they're told. But the prudent carefully consider their steps. And so it's not that Nehemiah didn't believe what he had been told. He had been told the city was a mess. But now he's saying, okay, I'm going to slip out and I'm going to go look at this thing for myself. He's still gathering facts. Gathering facts. Gathering facts. Uh, n- number five, a good leader, motivator, identifies with the people. They become one with the people. He doesn't show up and say, man, you guys are a bunch of losers. Look at all of the time you've had. You guys can't get this these all rebuilt. Well, listen, I'm your savior. I'll take care of it. He doesn't do that. What he says is, he says that you know very well the trouble that we... I'm with you. I'm one of you in this thing. I'm not some big shot that showed up with all the answers to all the problems. No, 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 no. I'm one of you. We, all of us here, have, have some, 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 some trouble. Number six, a good leader, motivator, helps people see the value of the goal. And basically, verse 17 talks about this idea that, hey, listen, look, Jerusalem, the city, it's a disgrace. It's a disgrace to all of you, but more importantly, it's a disgrace to God. You see, we've been telling people that we're the ones that worship the one true living God. We're the people that have been telling everybody that our God is the only God, and look at his city. It's a disgrace, it's a disgrace to us, and it's a disgrace to God. Here's the goal, here's the value of the goal, we can end the disgrace. Come on. Come on. And a good leader, a good motivator will always help you see the value of whatever it is that's, that, that, that's, that's going to happen. And, and number seven, a good leader motiva- uh, motivator helps people see God's will in it. In verse 18, he says, he's looking around, and he says, I told them about how the gracious hand of God has been on my life. So imagine all these Jewish people are all around and, and he, he says, man, I, I, I want to tell you the story. He gives him a personal testimony. Hey, man, God has just unbelievably been guiding me. In fact, let me tell you how it happened. I went to King Artaxerxes, asked for a bunch of time off and he gave it to me. I asked to rebuild the walls and he said, go for it. I asked for safe passage all the way here from Babylon. He gave me letters to present to all, the, all the different governors. I asked for the, for the name of the guy that was the Home Depot manager and he gave me the guy's name and paid for all the wood. I didn't ask for an army escort, but he gave me one. And so if you were one of these, you know, Jews in the city, all of a sudden he's showing them this is God's will. This is God's will. And so, man, I'm sure all the men and people are going, oh man, th- th- this has got you know, potential, and that's why verse 18 says, they replied at once, yes, let's do it. Let's rebuild the walls, let's end this disgrace. Let's, let's do it, and so they began this good work. Unbelievable some of these, these principles. I, it's been my prayer that somehow we, we take a bit of history, Nothing wrong just looking at history, but maybe trying to see how it might apply to our lives and leadership in other areas. you got to pray, you got to plan, but then you got to be able to motivate people to action, wherever that, that might be. Why don't you stand up and let me, um, let me pray. Over in the venue, why don't you stand? And Father, thank you, Lord, for today. I have really enjoyed, man, I enjoyed last night, Lord, I enjoyed today. So thankful for those that um, have followed you in the area of baptism, that we were able to baptize over here in the main auditorium. So thankful we could worship you through great singing. We could worship you through our giving. And thank you for this incredible historical book. This is real history. I'm thankful that it's recorded for us. And may the some of the principles contained within this little story of Nehemiah help us all. And Pastor Scott, would you now close our, our time?